We are so glad to have uh, one of our own, Mr. Michael Height, preaching for us today. Please make Michael welcome. Thank you, brother. Well, good morning. Boy, it's so good to, to be here this morning, and uh, I want to tell you, it's such a privilege and a, and a joy to be able to fill in for Brother Drew when, and when he's away, and uh, I want to tell you, that's not easy for a pastor to do, to let somebody else preach in their, their pulpit, and uh, I have a friend here in Little Rock who's a pastor of Southern Baptist Church, and he's allowed me to fill in for him about four times, and the last time he called me, I said, why do you have me fill in for you? I mean, you've got a bunch of preacher buddies around. I mean, why are you calling me? And he said, well, you're the only one I can trust not to mess my church up while I'm gone. And so my prayer is this morning that while Brother Drew's trying, going away, trying to help our church, that I don't mess it up while he's away. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of James. As you know, Pastor Drew's been going through uh, the book of James, this study, and uh, what a wonderful study the book of James is. It has the voice of both a prophet and a pastor in his writings. And, and we're going to be in James chapter 5 this morning, <clears throat> looking at verses 1 through 12. And, and before we read these, I want to ask you a question. How many of you remember exactly where you were on 9-11? Raise your hand high. I mean, most of us, if we're old enough, we remember exactly where we were. It's kind of like the generation before, they remember exactly where they were when John F. Kennedy was shot. Before that, when Pearl Harbor, uh, where they were when they heard about Pearl Harbor. And so, for us, 9-11 was that monumental moment. And I remember when I, was, when I heard about it, I was on my way to, to class. I was in, uh, taking some college courses, and I had an early morning class. And and I went, I turned the radio on, and I heard, and, and the first plane had just hit, and they were, they were talking about what was going on, and, and they really didn't know. They were just saying that it was very, you know, a tragic thing. And so when I got to school, I found a class that was empty, and I turned the, the monitor on, the TV monitor on, and, and I turned it on just in time to see the second plane hit the second tower. And my teacher, who a professor was supposed to teach the first class, she came in, she saw I was just mesmerized by the TV. She said, what are you watching? And I said, they attacked us. I mean, I really didn't know how to put into words what I was seeing. And I remember that the crowd slowly grew around the TV, and then I began to see tears, and I began to hear sobs. And then they dismissed class, and then all of us were, were freaking out, trying to go to the school and get our kids because we didn't know what was going on. And, uh, and I remember that, the emotion of that. And when I read this passage in the, in the book of James, I was trying to think of what is it that is similar to this kind of emotion? Because when he writes in chapter 5, there is a passion in his pen. There is a passion in his voice. And I remember that as a pastor, all of us, it didn't matter what series we had going on. It didn't matter what events we had going on at the church. The events of 9-11 were so powerful and so strong that all of us were scrambling, trying to figure out how are we going to preach? How are we going to stand before our church Sunday morning and talk about what's going on? And, and immediately we began to have pastors who rose up in anger and they were, you know, decrying Islam and there was just an just a outpouring of anger. And then there was this outpouring of sorrow and this outpouring of disbelief. And we were all trying to find out how to minister to our congregation that Sunday following the attacks. Well, I kind of feel that intensity in, the, in James in this passage. 
I mean, he starts out, and what we're going to see really is just a, a, a man who's almost like an Old Testament prophet pronouncing a retribution upon a group of people. And then he's going to paint kind of a, a sorrowful reality, if you will, just something that, that breaks his heart. And so he carries us from being angry to being sorrowful. But then he's going to come right back as a good pastor does, and he's going to give us hope. Because there's always hope in the midst of our suffering if our eyes are on Jesus. And that's really what the whole passage is about. It's about hope in our suffering. So if you will stand with me, we're going to read James chapter 5, 1 through 12 together. Stand with me and we do this in reverence to the reading of God's word. And the Bible says that come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. They are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He doesn't resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the, Lord, the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Father, we thank you for your word, and pray, Lord, that you would take it the words that are spoken, the words that have been written in by your Holy Spirit, Lord, I just pray that you would impress those upon our hearts, that you would apply them to our lives. And Father, I pray for Brother Drew as he preaches this morning at Brother Larry's church. I pray, Lord, that you would bless that service in a mighty way. And Father, I pray that, that you would bless this service by being exalted in our midst, that when we leave, we would say what a wonderful Savior we have who truly is our cornerstone. And Father, we pray it and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. So we go back to verses 1 through 3, if you will. And, and the way I want us to look at this is I want us to read this as a pronouncement of a coming retribution. And so look at what James says again in verse 3. He comes and he says, come now, you rich. It's interesting because he points out who the recipient of this message is. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. I, I don't think there could be more powerful words that a man could write about his emotions toward a group of people who are taking advantage of other people. And he says, you need to weep. You need to howl because of the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted your garments or moth-eating. Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. 
you have laid up treasure in these last days. As a, as a pastor, I feel like James was really so mad and angry about what was taking place and what was happening to his people. I mean, even though they were spread out and he was writing to the believers who had been scattered abroad because of a persecution, he had that pastor's heart that said, it's all right if you talk about me, just don't talk about my people. It's all right if you hurt me, just don't hurt my people. And that's the way parents are towards their children. I mean, going back to 9-11, that's the way George Bush was toward the United States. You remember when he was on ground zero and he stood there crying and trembling and he said, I hear you, we hear you, and pretty soon the whole world will hear you. When he was talking about going after Osama bin Laden, I mean, they were just burdened that he understood there were injustices that had taken place. There were suffering that was going on. He couldn't do anything about it, but his heart was there with the people. And James's heart definitely is with the people. But we must identify who these people are that he's speaking against. I mean, because the first time I read this passage, I'm sure it's the same with you. It's easy to say, well, you know, that's not talking about me because I'm not rich. Right? I mean, immediately when we hear the word rich, all of us have some image that pops into our mind. And our images are going to be different. But none of those images include us. It doesn't matter how much money we have. We're not going to call ourselves rich. There's too many bills to pay. So when we look at these people who are rich, it's not the quantity of their possessions that James is measuring. He's not saying, woe to you, you rich man, because you have a million dollars in the bank. The Bible says absolutely nothing about the amount of wealth one can have. What it has is about, what it speaks about is the quality of that wealth. If wealth has become the priority of your life and how you gain that wealth. And so when James is addressing this passage of scripture, he's saying to these people who probably will not even read this passage of scripture. Because the church, I mean, the rich people that he's talking about are not believers. This was a a corrupt society that was holding down another group of people and they were gaining money in a way that was hurting the people that they were gaining it from. So look what he said. They tell us that, that first of all, they were guilty of withholding wages. So when he talks about the rich here, he's not just talking about the people who have a lot of land, a lot of money, a lot of possessions. He's talking about those who gain their wealth at the expense of others. Now, this was an agrarian society, and the way people earned their living was through day wages. They would go out and they would work for a farmer. They would go out and earn living for a day. But then there were some corrupt farmers, there were some corrupt landowners who refused to pay what these people were owed. And this was literally their livelihood. They were not working to build up their savings, they were working to put food on the table. And so you had one class of people who was holding down another class of people by refusing to pay them the, for the work that they had done. And then we see that they were guilty of their self-indulgence at the expense of others. I mean, James is very clear that they had gold, they had silver, they had, they had garments. I mean, they had riches. All these things were at the expense of somebody else. I mean, the Bible never condemns good things but it does condemn them if they are at the expense of somebody else. I mean, we are not entitled to hurt some way on our, somebody on our way to happiness. And so then the Bible tells us that they're guilty of abusing those that were left fortunate. 
James sees this situation. He sees this going on. He understands how his people are suffering, that the followers of Christ are suffering, and his anger has welled up within him, and he's shouting out like an Old Testament prophet, you need to be aware because these things that you're doing are going to come back to bite you in the end. He's saying, you need to weep. You need to show some misery. All these things that you have, that you take pride in, one of these days they're going to disappear. And not only are they going to disappear, they're going to be the very thing that stands in judgment against you. All these things that you live for will one day condemn you. I mean, that's a pretty powerful thought. And so then he turns his focus on the corruption itself. I mean, he pronounces this retribution against the rich. We've established that the rich are not rich because of the amount of money they have. The rich in this passage are called the rich because of the way they gained their wealth. It was dishonest. There was a way that they hurt people in order to gain more money. And then he turns in verse 4, and he begins to paint a corrupted reality. Now, look at the reality of this situation. I mean... I mean, all of us would like to pretend that we lived in a perfect world, but we don't. And so James, in writing and painting this picture of this corrupted society, this corrupted reality, he tells us in verse 4, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. I mean, here were the wealthy people defrauding the poor people. He says, these things are calling out or crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. God's heard them cry. It's kind of like when the Israelites were in Egypt. The Bible says that their cries came before the Lord. The Lord is not deaf when we cry. We may not see him move instantly. But he hears our sorrow. He feels our sorrow. He sees our tears. And he heard these people who were suffering under the oppressive hand of wealthy landowners. And, he, and James was reminding these people, you need to watch out because God knows what you're doing. It may be okay in the eyes of the world, but it's not okay in the eyes of God. And God knows what you're doing. And these people who are crying out because of what you're doing against them, their cries are coming up before God Almighty. I mean, that's a pretty scary proposition to think that somebody could cry out against me and God himself would hear it. That would put you on very dangerous ground. And then he says, he deals with in verse 5 and 6, he says, You have lived on this earth in luxury, and you have lived in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Let's look at this reality for just a minute. It's a corrupted reality, but it is the reality in which we live. And I think there are three things, really, that we can take from this passage about the corrupted world we live. First of all, the reality that there are corrupted people. I mean, we live around them. There are people who are just absolutely corrupt. I remember one day a guy came to my office, and, and his eye, he couldn't even lift his, his, eye, his head up. And he had his eyes covered with his hands, and I said, what is the matter? And, and he was a Hispanic guy, and he said, they made me weld for eight hours. I said, okay. And he said, they would not give me a helmet. He burnt his eyes, and I had to take him to the ER. But you know what the boss said? He told him, he said, if you tell anybody where you got these burns, I'm going to tell immigration that you're over here. You tell me that's not corrupt. 
I mean, there are people who do not care who they hurt, how they hurt them, just as long as it benefits their bottom line. And I'll tell you, we can fall in this trip, trap, trap excuse me, as business owners and our jobs and we forget that even our secular income, even though our, our jobs, we may think of them as secular, God sees them as his tools to bless people with. And if we hurt people in the process of becoming wealthy or hurt people in the process of benefiting ourselves, then we are actually working against the good of society and God is opposed to that. And so we look around us and we realize that, that we are surrounded by corrupt people. Most of us really, when we hear somebody say something, we wonder, are they telling us the truth? Can I really trust what this person has to say? Because society has become so corrupt. But not only was James talking about corrupted people, but he was talking about corrupt systems. We hear a lot about this, and I, I, don't, I really don't think the majority of us understand the, the arguments around white privilege and the systemic abuse that has been taking on, uh, place for years, I know they exist, but I don't think for, for those of us raised in the South that we really understand the magnitude of what that really means. But systems have a tendency to hold people down. They either build people up or they hold them down. And so our governmental systems or our societal systems can serve as one or the other. They can be benefiting somebody while at the same time holding somebody else down. If you've read the news, you know that, that Venezuela is in an absolute state of turmoil. I mean, the United States has, has uh, thought about sending aid, tried to send aid. I mean, they're trying to do something, but the Venezuelan government won't allow them. You have really a, just a, a division of power that's taking place. But what's so sickening about What's happening over there is that the wealthy people are still living as if there were plenty of money. There was a photo that got out on social media and it showed a, a, a resort in Venezuela where the people were around drinking their drinks, having a good time and partying. And so I got on Google and I was looking and, and I did a study. How many bolivares, that's the Venezuelan currency, how many bolivares does it take to equal two U.S. dollars? And I kid you not, the stack of money, the stack of bills that it took to equal two U.S. dollars was wider than this, this table, this pedestal, that like, uh, at least about that wide and that tall. You can look for yourself. They have photo images of dollar bills, what it equals is versus bolivares. They have an inflation rate that is over 1,000%. But look what Forbes magazine said. He said, it's not really the rich who suffer. The majority of Venezuelans are struggling to survive as the country has become engulfed in poverty and political violence. But this only applies for some. The wealthy minority still sip cocktails, enjoy nights at the bar, and eat sushi as they lived unfazed by the turmoil outside their walls. You know and, and I watched it and I think, how is it possible that you can be so calloused to see suffering around you? We have a missionary right here in Arkansas. He's planting a Hispanic church over in the Chenal area. 
And his mother passed away in, one of the, in Venezuela. And one of the reasons she passed away was because of the complications of not being able to get adequate nourishment and adequate medicine. And yet you have a group of minority who still continue to live in luxury. In fact, I believe John wrote about that in the book of Revelation. That in the tribulation, there are going to be those who are, who are partying and have a good time. He says, don't hurt the oil and the wine. The rich are going to get richer, but the poor are going to get poor. The haves are going to have and the have-nots are not. And it's systemic. Nicaragua is the same way. I mean, we have people here at South City who are here, and the only reason they are here is because the government and the systems in Nicaragua are so corrupt that they were forced to flee their country. Jorge, my co-pastor at El Faro, we went to Nicaragua on three different trips. And the pastor of one of those churches attends South City semi-regularly. And he had a, a church of over between four to 600 members. And the only reason he's over here is because he had to flee Nicaragua. Now look what the paper says about Nicaragua. This was an article in the nationsencyclopedia.com. He says, Nicaragua is one of the poorest nations in the Western Hemisphere despite improvements. Now think about it. They have improved their nation's economy and they have implemented an abundance of government programs. Sounds good. But listen to the corruption and the results. Almost half of the population lives in poverty. These factors have only reduced poverty in the nation from 50% of the population who lives in poverty to 48%. So with all these so-called government programs, they brought the poverty level down a whole two percentage points. And then he said, and then he goes on and he says, or about 2.3 million people since 1995. So you're talking about uh, 14 years. And it says, the nation's official poverty line is 350 U.S. dollars per year. $350 a year. But of the nation's poor, 17% live below that, earning less than 185 U.S. dollars a year. But what is so mind-boggling is when you go to Central America, you go to Latin America, you'll still find modern malls that are full of people. You still find American restaurants and chains serving the same priced steaks, serving the same priced hamburgers, but while over 50% of their country lives in abject poverty. I want to tell you, that's the reality of the world that we live in. I mean, you think about the union, why the unions arose in their time. They arose because of the abuse of the, of the wealthy business owner, the way they were abusing the working class. Think of child labor laws. They were brought into existence because they were corrupt businessmen and women who wanted to abuse the system for their own good. And the earlier you can get a child into labor, the better shot you have of keeping him into labor. If they do not have an education, if they don't have a system that benefits them, if they don't have some way of rising above poverty, it becomes generational. And one generation after another, after another, after another, and then they get bogged down in that trap. And people who don't live in it are wondering, why don't they get out of that? Because they've been victimized by, the, by a reality that is corrupt. Now, that's not an excuse. It's just the reality. James saw this happening to the believers. 
If you remember, the believers were the minority, were still the minority, but we were not a very well-liked people in the first century. Facing persecution, facing ridicule. And James looked and he said, these people who are doing this to you, shame on them. Shame on them. They are corrupt people, they have corrupt systems, and they even corrupt the government. Read an article the other day that said, I'm not going to say which country it was, but it was one particular country that 38% of their, their income comes from illegal drug sales. Now think about that for a minute. If you have a government that's running off of 40% from illegal money, are you going to shut the cartels down? You're not going to shut your funding down because that's how you're filling your pockets. And so the sad reality is we need to open our eyes and realize there is some corruption around us. That it affects races of people. It affects um, nationalities of people. It affects religions. I mean, we're not all just victims of everybody. I think we live in a victim society. Everybody wants to be a victim. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that James is writing to a reality that sometimes we do become victims of other people who are taking advantage of us. Now, what's, what's interesting is that, and we'll read the passage here in just a minute, is that James takes it from not just money. When he brings in Job and he brings in the prophet, he really allows us to look at suffering on a larger scale. Because Job faced the loss of family, the loss of wealth, the loss of livestock. I mean, he faced really even the loss of his health before the Lord restored it all. You take the Old Testament prophets, none of them really enjoyed wealth. They preached for the Lord, they spoke for the Lord, but they, they endured beatings and mockings and trial and scourgings. And so we can take suffering and we can broaden it from just financial. All right, let's make the application that, that all of us are suffering from something in this building. I mean, if we were to take a, really a survey of all that's going on in our hearts and our minds this morning, we would find out that some of us are used to plumbing the depths of depression. And every time we feel like we're about to crawl out of that hole, here comes the black cloud again. Some of you know exactly what the black cloud means. Some of us in here are used to living and, and struggling with the pain of addiction. And we, we know the pain that's causing us. And we know the pain that is causing those around us. We feel the crippling fear of failure. The fear that we're not going to live up. The fear that, that something's going to go wrong. The fear that we're going to lose it all. And this fear kind of cripples us. There's some of us who live under the weight of, of anxiety and sorrow and worry. There's some of us in here who are living through the blows and the setbacks of broken relationships. And nobody around us, we feel like, knows what we're feeling. And about the time we think things are going good again, boom, Satan comes back and we hit rock bottom again. Some of us in here may feel the stigma of being in an abusive situation and, and all your friends around you are saying, why don't you just leave that relationship? And they don't understand the grip that it has on your life. I mean, we could continue this list. I mean, some of us are dealing with, with gobs and gobs of guilt. I had a lady in, in my office one time that 
I was talking to her about Christ, and she said, you know, I love Jesus. I love the Lord. And she said, but I did something when I was a young woman that makes me believe that God could never allow me to get into heaven. And I said, well, what was that? And she said, I had an abortion. She's now in her 50s. For more than 30 years, she has lived and carried the guilt of a decision that she made as a young person. And I looked her in the eyes and I said, I don't know how to help you erase the guilt of what is done and what has happened. But I know that when Jesus died for you, that didn't catch him by surprise. He died for all of our sins. And so we live with the guilt, unable to unload it and get away from it. And then there's some who are living and who are in this building today only because their whole life has been interrupted by corrupt governments, corrupt systems, corrupt people. And they've escaped to the United States to try to find something better for them and their family. So I think it's safe to say that all of us probably have something that we can say, you know what, this is a constant thorn in the flesh for me. It is a constant source of suffering. So James takes that reality of suffering and he flips it on his head. And look what he does in verse 7. I mean, the whole tone of the passage changes. He goes from being almost depressed over the situation to being angry over the situation to now he's bringing in hope to the situation. And notice what he says. If, if you look there in verse 7, we find out that, that he begins to bring us the promise of restitution. The Bible says it in uh, verse 7, be, be patient, James says. You know, it's kind of, you're, you're thinking when you read this, well, it's easy for you to say you're not the one that's in the middle of the problem. I mean, James is not being abused by these wealthy people, but he's telling the people who are to be patient. And he says, be patient, therefore, brothers, in intimate term, they're part of the family. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. I mean, look at that word in verse 7, until. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. It's kind of a word that reminds me of pregnancy. If y'all will forgive me to, to, to divulge a little bit. I, we have two kids, and both of our children were born premature. And uh, my wife, bless her heart, she did the best she could. She just couldn't hold on to them long enough. And, uh, and so back then, 20 years ago, I don't know what they do now, but 20 years ago, they sent us home when she started contractions at, at six months. They sent us home with a belt around her belly. And every day, twice a day, my wife had to hook up a telephone to this belt, and it would take, monitor her contractions, and it would send them in. And if they were a certain amount, they would say, okay, you need to do this again in 30 minutes, and if it doesn't get better, you need to come to the hospital. Well, St. Vincent's Hospital got to where they knew us on a first-name basis because we were in and out, and they were saying, it's good to see you again. And I said, no, it's not. This is the most expensive hotel that there was ever created. But I remember her, and they, then they put her on bed rest, and they said, okay, you can't work. You've got to stay in bed, or, you, or this baby's going to come too early, and she's not going to be healthy. And so we were dealing with that, the struggle. I was making about $5.50 an hour. My wife was a dialysis tank, so she wasn't making much more. But then we lost over half of our income, and she was in bed. 
But I remember the change when the baby came. Some of you women know exactly what I'm talking about. I Googled complica- or side effects of being pregnant. Since I've never been pregnant, I Googled it. You have to be careful what you Google, right? Now, I don't want you to say amen to any of this, but some of you ladies will know what I'm talking about. There was a list this long of things women went through when they were pregnant. I mean, they, it talked about the swelling. It talked about the bloating, the hormones, the moodiness, you know, the, the emotions going up and down. And then it even talked about constipation and excessive gas. That's why I said don't agree with me. But, you know, they, but what happens when the baby's born? You forget about it all. When Morgan was born, right before she began to, to make her presence into the world, I guess she got scared and she stopped. And her heart rate began to fall. And so the doctors jumped into high gear and they had to get the forceps and they reached in and they pulled her out and they bruised her face in the process. And I remember this nurse who was a travel nurse from New York. You know, we Southerners, we love Yankees, right? (laughs) She said in that Northern accent, she said, don't worry, she will not look like a frog forever. I want to tell you, I instantly had redneck in me. (laughs) Frog, what are you talking about? That's the most beautiful baby that has ever been born. You know, even though she cost us $60,000 and we, you know, we were in in abject sorrow for the whole time. (laughs) When she came, it was all worth it. And in that moment, I would have fought for her. I would have died for her. You know, I think James is saying, look, you're suffering. There's a reality. Whatever you call your suffering, whatever area of your life it is in, it's real. But he says there's hope because our suffering doesn't last forever. You see that word until, that small little preposition in there gives us hope. It says be patient until Jesus comes. Be patient until the Lord comes. Act like the farmer who plants his field, his his grain in the ground, and he waits for the rain, hoping to have a harvest. And all of his anxiety and worry is over when the harvest comes, and he's able to celebrate the first fruits of what God has provided. And then then he goes on, he says in verse 8 again, he says, You also be patient, establish your hearts. In other words, settle up, get steady. And he says, why? For the coming of the Lord. Now, this is the kind of way I see it. It's almost like James is saying, yeah, there's some messed up things in your life, in our life, and in our world, and in our government. I mean, we could go through the whole list. But he says, hold on. You may be suffering now, but hold on. You may not understand it now, but hold on. You may want to give up now, but hold on. You may want to run now, but hold on. Why? Because there's a new sheriff coming to town. There's a new sheriff. What kind of sheriff is he? Well, if you look in verse 11, we find out that he is the Lord who is compassionate and merciful. He contrasts the Lord with these rich people who've been taking advantage of the poor. They have defrauded their wages. They have literally made their lives horrible. But he said he won't last forever because Jesus is coming. And you need to remember that when you start turning on one another. 
And it's interesting that he puts that in the middle of the text in verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Now, if you think about the context of the passage, they didn't have churches like this, church buildings like this. They were house churches. And when you're going through problems and suffering, where does it affect you the most? I mean, if you have a bad boss, they can cause you to have a bad home life if you take it out on the wrong people. And James was saying, look, don't blame and devour one another. Put this, the context in the setting of a bigger story. This is not the whole story. It's just part of the story. And one day the judge is going to come, and when he comes, he is going to be compassionate, and he is merciful, and he's going to judge those who have judged and oppressed others, and he's going to put an end to the suffering, and he's going to cheer up the depressed, and he's going to calm down the anxious. He's going to give hope to the hopeless. He's going to give all these things that we have longed for in our life. When Jesus comes, he brings them with him. And that word compassionate is such an interesting word. It's a word that in the Greek sounds or spelled like it sounds. And it literally means the bowels. And James uses this word. It's one of the, the, the very few uses of the word in the whole Bible. And it literally talks about Jesus can feel your suffering down in the, in the bottom of his bowels. He hurts with you. Compassionate comes from two words. It comes from the prefix C-O-M, which means together and with. And then it comes from the other word passionate. In other words, he feels and he's passionate with you. He suffers with you. He's not oblivious to what we're going through. I want to tell you, I don't want to preach a woe is me sermon. Where everybody says, yes, my life is so hard and so tough. I'm going to tell you, we're the children of a king. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We serve a sovereign God who at any moment can end any suffering that he wanted to end. We endure because there is a greater hope coming. We endure because this government is not going to be the government that rules the world. Jesus' government is going to be the government that rules the world. We endure because the hope that we have in him carries us through all the disappointments of others who have let us down. We know that Jesus won't let us down. We know that God loves us. Why? Because he sent his only begotten son to die on Calvary's cross in our place. He didn't have to do that. He could have allowed us to go on living thinking we we're doing the best we can and then die and go to hell. But he said, I love you so much that I'm going to send my son to die in your place. And the Bible says that it pleased God to bruise him. In other words, in Isaiah, when Isaiah was prophesying about the coming of Jesus and the death of Jesus, he was saying it pleased God to allow his son to die in our place. So rather than blame God for our suffering, I think we need to run to him with it. Embrace him in spite of it. And thank him that he's going to put an end to it one of these days. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? I don't see Brother Jerry or Brother Drew's not here. So we'll just open the altar up as the musicians play. Well, I kind of want to offer this invitation is I want us just 
to take everything that we're dealing with. Some of us are dealing with health issues, loved one with health issues, mental issues. I mean, the list could go on and on and on. And I want you to put that in the context of the coming king. You see, if our problems become bigger than our God, we really do have problems. But as long as we can take our problems and our suffering and we can put them in their place and to say, my God is bigger than these problems and these suffering. If he wants me to go through them, I'll go through them, but he'll give me the strength to do that. If he chooses not to remove this trial, he'll give me the grace to endure it. But he's always going to be bigger than no matter what comes at his children. You see, he's the father that is ready to defend his children. He is the father who is ready to fight for his children. He is the father who loves his children. And there is no one greater than our father. No enemy, Satan himself, the demons that seem to to make us so scared, none of these can come against our father. And when he sent his son to die on the cross, Satan thought he had won. He thought he had the victory. God said, watch this. Not even death is more powerful than me. So in life and death, we have hope. But we've got to fix our eyes on Jesus. Get them off of our circumstances. Don't pretend they don't exist. But be realistic in saying, yeah, this hurts. We deal with it. We move on because God is bigger than this. Anybody who has walked with the Lord for any length of time, I'm sure would admit immediately. The only reason they're still walking with the Lord is because God's grace has been sufficient. Satan will do anything he can to destroy you, destroy this church, destroy your family. We serve a God who is much bigger than our enemy. Father, we love you. We embrace you. Not because we have any right, but because you ask us to. And Lord, this morning, we just want to say thank you. Thank you that our suffering is not bigger than you are. Our doubts, our fears, our angers, our bitterness, none of that is bigger than you are, Lord. Your love overcomes that. So Lord, this morning I pray for my brothers and sisters in here who may be struggling with their faith. It's the entire book of James, Father. You know it deals with the temptations and trials of our faith. And, and some are really going through it right now. And we don't want to be cavalier. We don't want to pretend like that didn't exist. But Lord, we want to place our faith in you. Because you are bigger than those issues. Father, we love you. We love worshiping you together as a family. And we feel so privileged to be here this morning. And I pray it and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As they sing, maybe you just need to come to the altar or pray right where you're at. But I don't want you to leave here until you have placed Jesus high in your mind's eye, saying, Jesus, you are worthy. You are bigger than whatever I'm facing. And I'm going to trust you with whatever I'm facing.